Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. We really appreciate all the help they give us. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and when you do that, rate and review us. We would uh, love to hear some of that, and it really helps uh, people find this podcast when you do that. And as always, if you have any feedback, go ahead and send that to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. I'd love to hear just about anything from you guys, Uh, positive takes, negative takes, guest requests, anything like that. So this week on the podcast... State Senator Frank LaRose, uh, probably more well-known as the Secretary of State nominee for the Republican Party, Frank LaRose. So, so why do you guys have him on? Frank's an interesting guy with a really interesting backstory, and I think that he's going to be around in Ohio politics for a long time. He is a military veteran. He served in Iraq. He is part of a younger generation of uh, politicians. He's a really personable guy. And I think that he has a lot of insight into how the state house works, how Ohio politics works in general, and um, I really enjoyed talking to him. I'm really happy with how this interview unfolded. He he did he opened up a lot more than uh, some of our other guests, and I think we actually do a pretty good job of getting people to open up on this show. But he was willing to talk about you know some of the minutia in uh, lawmaking and some of his background. He's got a pretty storied military career, like Mary said. So I, I just thought it was, uh, it was a great conversation. I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. With that, let's go ahead and get to the interview with Frank LaRose. We're joined here today by Frank LaRose. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mary. Yeah. So we, we're hoping to talk to you a little bit about your growing up. I understand you grew up in Copley, Ohio. What was it like growing up there? You know, for me, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, in fact, I, I still enjoy spending time there. Um, I, I had the chance to uh, be part of a, a great Boy Scout troop, to be educated in a great public school district. And I had the good fortune of having the, the opportunity for my school-age job to work on a family farm. In fact, I, I still enjoy going out there uh, every now and then on the weekends. We were just bailing hay uh, this past two weekends, and, and uh, that's Bender's Farm in Copley Township. Really enjoy it. Uh, it's a great spot. So I know that you mentioned scouting. Um, we understand you are an Eagle Scout. Um, what do you enjoy about scouting? You know what, for me, it was a chance to uh, get outside, and that's always been something that I've enjoyed. Um, But I was also looking for mentorship. I don't think I realized it at 13, 12 years old. I don't think any of us do at that age, but I was looking for mentorship, and I found that in the scouting program. Um, My Boy Scout leader, a guy named Bill Miller, uh, who's still with us today, 95 years old, uh, World War II veteran, amazing guy. Uh, As a young guy, I idealized uh, Bill, I mean, he's still my hero, and uh, uh, you know he's the guy that that I wanted to be like, and that's probably one of the reasons why I, I, I joined the, the military when I was 18. Um, here's a guy that was a uh, student at the University of Akron, and when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he gathered his uh, uh, fraternity brothers, and they went down to the recruiting station in downtown and stood in line for hours to to uh, enlist in the in the military. And, uh, he was part of the Normandy invasion, uh, liberated a concentration camp uh, when he was just in his early 20s. I mean, it, it, pretty neat stuff. And so that's that was part of the, the, the appeal to it. Plus, it was a lot of fun. I mean, the scouting program for me uh, was, was a lot of fun. It got to travel all over the country, uh, 
you know, hiking in the Rocky Mountains, uh, camping on the battlefield at Gettysburg. I mean, just some amazing stuff that I got to do as a, as a Boy Scout that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. So I guess some people may not know this, but if you're cracking open a cold beer in Northeast Ohio, uh, you may have Frank's family to thank. Your family founded the House of LaRose Beverage Company, a beer wholesaler Mm -hmm. in the 1930s. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in a family business? Yeah, so uh, 80-year-old family business started by my great-grandfather, employs, uh, you know, 200-plus people in in Northeast Ohio, many of which are Teamsters and a, a real dedicated workforce they've got there. Um, for me, those conversations around the around the, the dinner table about um, you know uh, business decisions were commonplace, and so uh, part of the, the the role that I'm running for, as you know, is the place where all new businesses go to start at the Ohio Secretary of State's office. And so, um, you know, growing up in a family business uh, and going and, and sweeping the warehouse floor when I was a kid, and 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 collapsing boxes with my dad on Saturday afternoon, and that kind of thing was. Uh, you know, it was, was commonplace. Uh, I, I always remember uh, uh, when we would go to a restaurant, it, it, I just thought it was normal that the first 30 minutes or 20 minutes was spent talking to the restaurant owner about making sure that the deliveries had been on time and that the sales <laughs> rep was taking good care of them. Likewise, my mom would send my, you know, send my dad to the grocery store to pick up a gallon of milk and we would first walk to the stock room and talk to the stock manager <laughs> and so I just thought that's how it was you walk back through those swinging doors in the in the grocery store and, and talk to the uh, you know talk to the team back there about the their beer delivery or the the latest displays or whatever was going on in the beverage aisle it just seemed like commonplace to me but that was uh, my dad the other funny thing and I and I picked up this habit my dad would walk down a, a, an aisle at the grocery store and he would stop and turn the package so that the label was facing out the right way and just did it like without even thinking about it subconsciously it's called facing right and so like if somebody's been messing around with the with the product on the on the shelf and like you're looking at the UPC code instead of the 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 label uh you know you're supposed the sales reps are supposed to turn it so it's facing out so like the pretty side of it is out and and I still find myself doing that like standing there in a grocery aisle turning the bottles so that they face out without even thinking about it <laughs> i'm curious what you think of ohio's liquor laws coming from uh you know beverage distributor i came from nevada where they are um a little more lax yeah. to put it lightly so i'm just curious what do you think of the liquor laws uh, every state has idiosyncrasies as it relates to liquor laws but they're all in place for some reason uh you know you go to pennsylvania they've got all kinds of strange rules that you can only get beer from a gas station or you can't get beer from a gas station rather you have to go to a grocery store and that kind of thing uh you know there have been some changes to ohio's liquor laws that i think are are smart over the last few years to to try to bring some common sense to things Um, i've always recused myself on those just because of the impact it could have on my family business i'm not a uh, shareholder there. I mean, my dad is one of the owners of the business and my uncles and, and, and my dad and my aunt run, run the place. But so I've just always sort of recused myself on any kind of liquor votes, but, uh, things like, um, allowing people to put a, put the cork in the bottle and take it with them, uh, without violating the, the open container law, common sense, people were over consuming because they buy a $30 bottle of wine with dinner and, and they didn't want to waste it. So they drink more than they would otherwise. So that's common sense kind of stuff and allowing people to, to take it home with them. And, uh, some of the things for like outdoor refreshment areas that Ohio has done, we're, I think moving in the right direction on that, um, you know, uh, allowing some, some more common sense, uh, to what has otherwise been some pretty restrictive liquor laws. What's your favorite beer? 
<laughs> it's like, which one of my children do I like the best? Come on. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's funny because we've got a lot of great microbrews all over Ohio and all over the country. And, and the beer scene, if you're somebody that enjoys beer, is a lot of fun right now. Uh, and I hope that that keeps going. Uh, I got to tell you, though, I mean, the, the brand that, that, that my family's business was, was built on, uh, would would be, I think, considered the biggest of the macro brews, right? And um, that's Budweiser, which is still a consistent, good, high-quality beer. And the amazing thing about that is you, you buy one in um, Akron, Ohio, or in, you know, um, Ankara, uh, you know, anywhere in the world that you buy a Budweiser, it tastes almost exactly the same. And, and anybody that knows about the brewing process knows how hard that is to get that kind of consistency. Um, and, uh, and that's something that I admire about it. it. It's a, it's a good, it's a good refreshing beer still. Are you still involved in the family business at all or? No, I'm not. Um, I mean, you know, I don't have any business interest in it. Right. Uh, I don't work there. Um, and, uh, maybe someday, uh, would love to have the chance to go to work at the place that my great grandfather started. Uh, but we made the decision that, uh, that, that business and politics should be kept separate to the extent possible. And although as a state legislator, I could have a second job, uh, my, my dad and my uncles and I talked about it and decided that it was probably best for me not to work there at the same time as I was serving in public office. Right, right. So, you know, we want to talk a little bit about um, what you did after high school. So after graduating from Copley High School, you enlisted in uh, the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne, um, which I have read was a lifelong dream of yours. You later became a Green Beret with the U.S. Special Forces and and won a Bronze Star. I know you touched a little bit on it, but can you talk about why you've always wanted to join the military, why that was a dream of yours? Yeah, so I'm very patriotic. I don't apologize for that. It's uh, uh, always been a a component of of who I am from really the youngest age. I remember uh, the Fairlawn Fourth of July parade in, in Fairlawn, Ohio, down in Summit County, and standing on the side of the parade route, and I, I don't know, probably eight, nine, ten years old, like when I could first sort of think about these kind of things and seeing the old Marine veterans that would reenact the Iwo Jima flag raising, uh, seeing the men and women from the local VFW post marching in the parade and, and, and having a, a, a feeling that these are special people that did something truly uh, worthwhile and remarkable. And, and then as I had the chance to be mentored by people like Bill Miller, World War II veteran, and um, you know, I, I just I think that this country is still a beacon of hope for the world, and uh, it's a, a, a truly the finest example of uh, of, of freedom. Uh, we haven't always gotten it right, but we're we're constantly making it better. And uh, to me, that's something worth fighting for. And so I enlisted at 18 years old and never looked back. Uh, I, I was looking for an adventure. I, I was not uh, uh, I was not interested in going to college at that time. I'm glad that I later did. I'm glad that I did in my late 20s. I think I was a more serious student at 28 than I would have been at 18, for sure. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of people that knew me growing up, I was always, I don't want to say rebellious, but I I kind of marched to the beat of my own drummer. I I did my own thing, and I I, I, I definitely, um, you know, had had a, 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 I don't know, an adventurous streak, I guess you could say. And so a lot of people thought I wouldn't succeed in the Army. They said, oh, Frank doesn't like to do what he's told. He's not going to he's not going to fit well in the military culture. And and actually, the opposite was true. I knew from the first day at basic training that I was where I belonged. And uh, and that 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 tendency to not want to be told what to do 
just encouraged me to make rank that much faster. If I didn't want to be told what to do, then maybe I should, you know, move up in the ranks and become the guy telling telling folks what to do. Uh, and so I, I loved the Army. The 101st Airborne Division was a great unit to, to sort of grow up in. My first, my first unit, you know, what normally for most people would be their college years, 18, 19, 20, 21. I spent at Fort Campbell in the 101st Airborne Division. It's an excellent um, conventional unit and then having the chance to go try out for the special forces was a dream come true. I mean, a 180 pound kid from Akron, Ohio, I didn't think I could do that. I mean, I thought that was Superman kind of stuff and, but I figured what the heck I might as well try. So, so you served in the military during the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So this was right, you know, around the aftermath of, of nine 11 was, is that fair mm -hmm. to say, what was it like being a member of the military, uh, in that time? Well, a couple things. Um, so I, I enlisted in 97, so obviously well before the, the sort of 9-11 era, um, and uh, I served in, in Kosovo in, in, in that time frame, and, and so it was interesting because that at the time seemed like the big war, and, and obviously it was very different compared to what we ended up facing in, in Iraq and, and what some of my brothers and sisters faced in Afghanistan. Um, but it was it was a good time to serve. I, I think that uh, the good news is that we as a country have learned the lesson that uh, whether you support the political and strategic decisions that our elected officials are making or not, uh, regardless of that, we support the men and women that put on the uniform and go and serve where they're told to go. Um, an experience I'll never forget when we flew home from Iraq. Uh, and the good news is there was a, a real national sense of patriotism and support for the troops and that kind of thing. And so we felt very appreciated. In fact, sometimes you would blush, you'd be out pumping gas in uniform or whatever, uh, or just stopping to get a coffee on the way to work and you're in your army uniform and people would say thanks for your service or they'd try to buy your cup of coffee for you. And for a lot of us, it was like, wow, I, you know, I, you don't need to do this. I, I'm doing the work I love doing. Um, but when we flew home from uh, from Iraq, I remember landing middle of the night this airfield in columbus called rickenbacker and um flew in i think it was on a c-17 cargo plane something like that and, and as we were landing we noticed a bunch of people with flags we we're like i wonder what's going on and so as we landed and, and got off the plane they lined up and our families were all waiting in a hangar for us and they sort of created this like tunnel for us to walk through and as i got closer i noticed that these are folks uh, that are wearing like leather jackets that said Vietnam Veterans of America and they had the the Vietnam service ribbon on them and that kind of thing and I remember coming up and talking to a couple of them and they said you know decades ago when we came home we didn't get the proper greeting that we deserved we were spit on we were called baby killers all this terrible stuff that that that, that happened and and they said we were going to make sure that your generation got the homecoming you deserved and so that's why we were out there at all hours of the night, standing on some windswept runway holding a flag. I mean, that says something about the American spirit. These guys weren't respected. Guys and gals weren't respected the way they should have been. Uh, but they've, they've made something really cool of it. And, and I did, to this day, that really touches me, how, how, they, how they did that. But that, that's, that that's, I think, encapsulates uh, what it has been like to serve in, in this sort of post-9-11 era. You know, I, I'm sure there were many, but, you know, what was your proudest moment serving in the military? I tell you what, I, I remember uh, distinctly the first time I put the uniform on. And it's funny because that was like my first moment in the military. But I remember looking in the mirror and just a few weeks before that, I'd been some, you know, scruffy high school kid that was typical high school kid. And now 
here I was putting on the uniform of my country and I was a soldier. I mean, that's a remarkable transition uh, to, to make. Um, I remember basic training graduation and how proud my mother and father were. And even though they didn't, I think, understand why I was wanting to serve, I mean, they, they, they thought I was making a mistake. I think it's safe to say they, they said, no, you should go to college. You shouldn't enlist in the Army when you're 18. And, and my mom in particular, God bless her, she's a, a that's the nicest way to say it. She's kind of an old hippie. <laughs> uh, I, I love her, but like she didn't understand why two of her children wanted to join the military. My little brother ended up doing it as well. And like when we were kids, we weren't even allowed to play with toy guns. Like that's how that's how my mom was. So we made sticks. Uh, you know, we took sticks out of the backyard and made up guns. But you know, but seeing the pride on their faces uh, when they uh, uh, saw me at basic training. But I think the the thing that really um, I was most proud of is when we could help people. Uh, and, and you don't think of this necessarily uh, about the military. You think of the military as the people that fight and win our wars, that defeat our enemies, that, that kind of thing. But there are a lot of human, humanitarian aspects to, to what we do overseas as well. Um, serving on a special forces team in particular, we got to work with people that had never met an American before. Um, I mean, that's a big responsibility, right? When you're, sit, when, when you're meeting a, a group of, of people in a foreign country that, that don't know uh, anything about America other than what they see on television or whatever else, uh, when you get to go to a refugee camp and help provide medical aid for, for children whose parents have been killed uh, in, in conflict, uh, when you get to work with a group of Iraqi police officers that have dedicated themselves to making their country a safer place and see the pride on their faces uh, as, they, as they're doing that work. I mean, those are the kind of things um, that, that, that I recall fondly about my time in the military and, and why I was um, thrilled to be able to do the job. So you mentioned um, being really proud to be a veteran and, uh, you know, people want to buy coffees and all that and coming out to see you. But I guess I get this feeling or, you know, some people at least get this feeling that in some ways veterans kind of aren't as revered as they once were. They're sort of the like token reverence, you know, Veterans Day, Fourth of July. Mm -hmm. Maybe they appear at a ball game or like you said, someone buys them a cup of coffee. But we've seen in politics, especially uh, the amount of veterans who are serving in elected office has really kind of plummeted in mm -hmm. recent years. All the while you've seen Congress you know, kind of, um, not necessarily gut, but definitely uh, decrease um, benefits for veterans. You know, with the exception of Mitch McConnell, uh, who was discharged before actually completing basic training, there's nobody in leadership who is a veteran. That's, mm -hmm. that's very, you know, if you take, if you look at the history of the country, that's really weird. That's like, you know, not a thing that usually happens. So I'm wondering, do you think there should be more veterans who uh, do get involved in politics? And uh, if so, how do the parties kind of ensure that veterans get involved in politics? Yeah, so um, I think that the voice of veterans absolutely matters and, and should be more involved in our national and state level leadership. Um, I think that historically speaking, uh, there were a much higher percentage of people serving in the federal uh, branches of, of the legislature as well as at the state level that were veterans, and, and particularly in the era after World War II. Uh, I think at one point there was actually a majority of the members of Congress that were veterans. Um, it's now in the single digits. Uh, I think the responsibility is partly, though, with my fellow veterans. I think that we need to step up and, and lead and, and, and get involved. I think that some people uh, get out of the military and have a lot of distinct uh, political opinions, but they're maybe a little afraid of the process. Uh, they've been taught in the military to kind of take a hands-off approach to politics, and that's what you should do in uniform. You don't want to, uh, you know, the, the, uh, 
commit a Hatch Act violation, for example, of, of, of sort of doing political activity when you're in uniform. But uh, but certainly as a citizen, uh, once you get out of the military, uh, your voice matters and, and you should get involved. I've often said that um, all of us that raised our right hands and, and, and swore an oath, uh, we're making a lifetime commitment to preserve and protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It didn't say for the next four years until my enlistment is up or uh, through my 20 years in the military until I retire or whatever else. It, that's a lifetime commitment. And, um, and I view public service as an elected official as a way of continuing to keep that oath that I swore when I was 18 years old. And um, uh, I hope that, that more of my fellow veterans decide to do that. I was having a conversation with a guy last week, actually, um, and encouraging him to, to, to run for office uh, who's, a, who's a veteran. Uh, and so that's my admonition to, to my fellow veterans. And, and the offer stands, and I've said this, Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter to me. If you're a veteran and you're thinking about running for office, look me up. Uh, I'll sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. I'll tell you the, the ups and the downs and, and, and whatever I've learned on my seven years that I've been doing this, because I, I think that we need more people to get involved who have that kind of experience. Do you think the decline in veterans in office is, uh, uh, do you think it's also contributed to the increase in partisanship? I mean, I we, we had Ken Harbaugh on the show, you know, a couple weeks ago. I'm going to guess that you and Ken Harbaugh are pretty far apart on the political spectrum. But, you know, talking with veterans, they, they all speak of that camaraderie. Do you think that when you had more veterans in office that they were able to sort of look past, hey, you know, you're you're team blue, I'm team red, whatever. Hey, we, you know, we both <laughs> yeah. served. Let's, you know, we know how to get things done or something like that. I mean, are, are you able to look past the partisan divide a little more? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I, obviously I think that we've got a lot of issues that our generation is going to have to deal with as it relates to our civic life and, and civility and the way that people interact with each other and having a productive dialogue instead of retreating to our corners and, and just hurling insults at each other and, and all of these things. I, I'm actually hopeful that, that, that sort of the next generation of leadership will, will get this right. Uh, I think that we have to. I mean, we can't go anywhere but up from here. Uh, and civility has always been something that, that I've um, worked on. Uh, I I, I co-chair a national effort uh, uh, with the National Institute on Civil Discourse that I've traveled around the, the country and, and offered these workshops for uh, other legislators that, that are just, the whole starting point is just getting to know each other, like having a little bit of camaraderie. And, and, and you talked about Team Red and Team Blue. I've actually described it as tribalism. Uh, people view themselves in politics as a member of a tribe. And, and, and I use that in, in, the, in the classic sense of, you know, if it, if it is good for my tribe, then it's virtuous. And if it's bad for the other tribe, then it's virtuous. And, and, and that is not the reality. That's not how statesmen and women should conduct themselves. Um, I was a little surprised culturally when I first got to the state Senate. And, and there are good, good people that serve down there on both sides of the aisle. And um, But I was surprised by the level of tribalism, um, by the fact that, that a lot of people show up in Columbus every week viewing themselves as a member of a tribe and what they had to do is make the other side look foolish. Um, I reject that whole notion. Um, and I think that uh, compromise is not a dirty word. It's how statesmen and women solve problems. Uh, in the military, you were part of a team, and regardless of how you felt about the person to your left and to your right, your life could depend on each other. And you build a camaraderie that is legendary. Um, and, and I remember basic training, 
you know, we had a guy from Puerto Rico that had never seen snow before. We had a kid from Kansas that had grew, you know, grew up on a farm and, and, a, and a guy from New York that had never been out of the city. And, but here we all were as Americans. And I remember the, the, uh, the drill sergeants who have a unique way with words that's somewhat legendary, right? Um, he said uh, on the first day of basic training, he said, I don't want to hear any of you idiots arguing about who's black and white and Hispanic and this and that. He said, you idiots are all green now. And, and in, in that sort of very rough style of, of a drill sergeant, what he was saying is, you know, your skin color is, is irrelevant here because what matters is the color of your uniform and you're all wearing the uniform of the United States. And so get along, make things happen. And we did. And, it, and it's something that uh, I think is, is lacking in politics. get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So you guys obviously got into pretty great detail about his military career. So I guess you probably went on to ask more about his, uh, how he actually got into politics, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> it's almost like I knew the answer to that question when I asked. <laughs> yeah, we did. And he told this really great story. And it's something that I've heard him mention on the campaign trail, too. When he was um, serving the military, he was able to see people in Iraq vote. And uh, he had a really insightful answer as, as far as how, you know, people in America sometimes take for granted, you know, our free election system. And you could really see his passion for voting rights and voting um, issues. Um, and I think this is a guy who really, really wants to be the next Secretary of State in yeah, I'm Ohio. Always, I'm struck by, if you, if you want to run for governor or whatever, you sort of have to climb the ladder first. Mm-hmm. So it's always like, why are you interested in auditing? Well, yeah. you know, I've, I've loved auditing since I was a small boy yeah, or right. whatever. But it, but it seems like with him, he has a, a better story to actually kind of tie in the functions of the office with, with his sort of personal biography. It's like Mary said... Uh, he he legitimately wants to be Secretary of State. Like that's what I get. That most a lot of people look at. Uh, you know, I mean, John Husted's an example. You know, I think yeah, he maybe wanted to be Secretary of State, but he obviously had further political ambitions beyond Secretary of State. He wanted to run for governor. Now he's running for lieutenant governor. I don't think that's you know an accident or anything like that. Whereas you see, you know, Frank very much wants to be secretary of state like he just he very he likes voting he he thinks voting is like what do you say he was jazzed about voting i think was the quote and i think you know to answer the question about why he wanted to become involved in politics you know i think it's just a extension of his commitment to service you know commitment to service through the military and I think he saw public service as, a, as another way to uh, help this country. He talked about how patriotic he was. And, and I think that his desire, his 
ambitions in politics sort of stem from that. He actually said he hates the politics side of politics. Um, I think he, he really enjoys the the work um, that you get to do once once you're elected. Don't they all say that, though? Yeah. I think some of them actually really like the politics, though. With that, let's get back to the interview with Frank LaRose. We wanted to ask you one more question about your experience in the military. Um, on the campaign trail, you've talked about um, watching um, people in Iraq vote for um, maybe the first time. Can you talk about that experience and, and what impact that had on you? Yeah. Uh, when you see people risk their lives to cast a ballot, it, it tends to stick with you. And, uh, you know, if you think about how rare the act of voting really is, I mean, it's become ubiquitous for us. And so at least two times a year, maybe three or four, there's an election and it generally goes off without a hitch. And the folks at the Board of Elections do a great job making that happen and, and all those election day workers and everything else. Um, but throughout human history, the way that you were in charge is by killing the guy that's currently in charge. Like, I mean, through thousands of years, that's how it worked. And if you could get more people with bigger clubs or sharper swords or more people on horseback or whatever else, then you got to be the person in charge. And, and, and the fact that we have a different way of picking our leaders, the fact that we use the ballot instead of the bullet is really kind of a remarkable thing that, that too many of us take for granted. Um, I tell the story about when I uh, filled out the paperwork uh, to, to, to get my top secret security clearance. Um, it's a page it's an 80 page thick uh, document it takes you days to fill it out they want to know everything about you naturally they're giving out secret security clearances so it's important that they find out what you're all about one of the questions on there that always i thought was funny is have you ever plotted the overthrow of the government <laughs> which is kind of an obvious it's kind of like it's you like know, that airport question do you have a bomb it's I, like oh yeah should i have left it in the car like you know i was reading a twitter account over yeah. the weekend i believe it's called a, a crime a day or something yeah. like that and it, it attempts to log all of the federal crimes that there are because there are just tons and sure, tons of them sure. one of them is that it is a uh, it is a felony offense if you plan to overthrow the government but you don't tell the attorney general about it you just so, have to tell them you have to tell <laughs> call them up <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, so that question, it you know, it's kind of a relevant question, I guess. If you're if you're giving out the uh, access to the nation's secrets, you want people to to have not plotted the violent overthrow of the government, and that's what they're talking about. So of course, right. I answered no on it. But it came to me years later as I was speaking to a college Republican group, and I was trying to think of something to kind of spark their interest. Um, anybody that's ever been part of a political campaign, anybody that's ever circulated a petition, signed a petition, run for office, marched in a parade, donated to a candidate, any, any of those things, voted, uh, has plotted the overthrow of the government. That's what an election is. It's the peaceful, it's an instrument to peacefully overthrow the government and institute new government. Uh, if you're voting for the non-incumbent, that's what you're, that's what you're doing. And, 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 and we just, take it for granted as though it's this ho-hum thing that, ah, oh, you know, I might show up if I want to, or I may skip it for a few years and not, I mean, what power that we have. Uh, and as you know, every year there are elections that are, that are determined by a very tight margin. We had a state central committee race here in Cuyahoga County that was determined by a coin flip because it was just, it was an absolute tie just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, anybody that tells me my vote doesn't matter, it's a ridiculous statement on its face. And so the right to vote is something that I'm pretty jazzed about, pretty excited about. And, and, and really, if you think about it, in thousands of years of human history, it is very, very rare, tens of thousands of years that people have been on this planet, extremely rare. 
Uh, the Greeks did it for a while, but you had to be a male of a certain class. And then, you know, we've been doing it for 240 years in this country, and it's kind of caught on around the world, which is a cool thing. But even for the 242 years now that we've been doing democracy, we haven't always done it right. Um, as we know, it was 98 years ago that women received the right to vote, finally. Like, what a remarkable thing. There are people alive today that lived in a time when half of our population was not permitted to vote. Like, how mind-blowing is that? And, and why aren't we talking about that more? As hopefully uh, the next Secretary of State two years from now when we celebrate the centenary of, of women's suffrage, I'm going to make a big deal about it. I talked to my three daughters about it, uh, and, and I hope that other people will as well. For uh, a, the majority of our history as a country, uh, up until probably 50, 60 years ago in certain parts of the country, thankfully not so much in Ohio, but in some parts, uh, people were prevented from voting because of their skin color. Like government officials were actively engaged in, in an effort to prevent people from voting because of their ethnic heritage. Uh, we need to know that kind of history so that we never repeat it. And so let's say that for 60 years we've had voting where people, uh, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, all colors, all ethnic backgrounds, all religions have been able to access the right to vote. I mean, that's a remarkable thing. We're kind of in this golden era of democracy and we don't even realize it. Um, and, and my interest in that started when I got to see people vote for the first time, like I said, in places like Iraq and Kosovo. It's a remarkable thing. So... After, after you came home, after your military experience, uh, you attended school at mm -hmm. the OSU, Ohio State University. Um, you went from, you know, military service to a college campus. Was it hard to transition back to civilian life? I mean, I can't imagine it was a similar experience at all. It, it, it was, actually. Um, it was a new challenge, and I'm, I'm always uh, into an, a new challenge. But I will tell you, uh, coming from this environment where I was serving on a special forces team, where I was you know, conducting very sensitive operations with some of the country's most finely, you know, best trained soldiers uh, and, and using some amazing equipment and jumping out of airplanes and doing all this fun stuff. And then now I'm sitting in a little wobbly desk in Columbus and there's like gum stuck underneath it. And, you know, I'm wondering like, what, what am I doing here? Uh, but I knew that if I didn't go to college uh, soon that I would probably never get to it because life starts to happen and I didn't want to go through life without a, a formal education. And so I decided it was time to go to go to school and, and earn a business degree. Thankfully, I have and, and had at the time a very supportive wife, uh, my, my wife, Lauren. We met when I was serving. Um, she's my hero because... I, after, you know, multiple overseas combat deployments and all this stuff, she was, you know, with me uh, all the way. And then when I said, hey, I want to go to college, and by the way, we're going to have to rely on your income for the next few years, <laughs> like, you know, what what an amazing kind of support that is and, and what an amazing kind of love that is that she sort of put up with all of that. And, and you know, the reason probably that I got involved in politics, um, not only have I had a passion about it for a long time, but I was looking for something to do other than being a college kid at, at 28 years old. And, and uh, I found that I was interested in politics. I started volunteering with a couple campaigns down in Columbus and, and uh, while I was going to Ohio State and, and, and 
I guess I was too old to join a fraternity, so I kind of ended up in the fraternity of campaigns and, and politics, which was a, a great thrill for me and, and something I'm glad I glad I decided to do. So you kind of started getting interested in politics when you were in school? Yeah, I think so. I mean, actively interested. I'd always had an interest, and in, in, as a guy in the Army, I, I tried to vote a couple times, and, and I wasn't as regular as I probably should have been and, and, and all of that, but I was always very interested in it. I, I remember making a political poster when I was in middle school. So I guess I didn't even realize, but I, I was interested in it way back then. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it was um, it was the chance to actually access the political process. So I saw in college that there were people I knew that were working on campaigns, and I was just blown away, like, wow, wait a second, you mean I can do that too? It's not something where there's like some barrier to entry. And universally, almost universally, anybody that I know that's involved in politics, whether they're an elected official themselves or whether they're a senior level political strategist, uh, whatever else, their their origin story in politics almost always starts the same way. So one day I walked into a campaign headquarters and decided I'd volunteer. And that's just like sort of how you, you get started. And so I've always said when I talk to younger people that are interested, like, don't wait for some invitation like nobody's going to come and grab you by the hand and 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 walk you there like if you want to get involved in politics find a candidate you believe in go to their campaign office and say hey can i help and they'll put you to work and before you know it uh, you'll be actively involved and that's one of the really cool things about politics is there's really no barrier to entry as long as you're willing to work hard so you got involved in presidential campaign advance work and for people who don't know what that is that's basically scouting out events ahead of the candidates uh public appearance and you worked for president bush senator john mccain mitt romney president trump can you talk about working on those presidential campaigns it must have been a wild ride you know it was um and and yeah the advance work is kind of where politics meets showmanship or or you know stagecraft uh you're you're producing live nationally internationally televised events with you know, four days notice sometimes and it, it's it's a really kind of remarkable ride and having gotten the chance to do that uh it in a lot of ways it connected me with my the, that military background because it's a lot of the the same kind of detailed planning you know and be ready for the plan to go out the door and you're gonna have to flex off that and and that kind of thing and so i i it really clicked with me and it maybe uh kind of back to like when in middle school i did the the lighting for the school plays like honestly that kind of that sense of timing and showmanship and everything else i really loved about it and um you know, there were times that I'm on the bus uh, with a candidate traveling across the country or sitting two seats behind my party's nominee on the plane, and I wonder, what the heck am I doing here? Like, how did I just get so lucky to be in this place at this time? Uh, you know, for example, in the 08 campaign, I traveled with Senator McCain and, and Mrs. McCain basically from April on uh, everywhere they went. And um, there were days I remember waking up and looking at the the phone on the nightstand in the hotel to remind me what city I was in. That was the kind of lifestyle that it was out on the road. And and then the next thing I know, I'd turn my radio on and it would be squawking about something that we had to do. And it was only 6 a.m. or whatever (laughs) else. Uh, And and so, you know, it was... uh, uh, it was a heck of an experience, and it was one of those that I'm glad I I'm glad I got to do it. Uh, and as a candidate now, I think it gives me a little bit more empathy for the staff and for what they're going through and um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, you um, entered elected office in 2011 and became a state senator. You know, after working behind the scenes in politics for all of those years, what made you decide to run for office? You know, I I, uh, I saw the direction that the country was going in. Uh, 
um, 2009, 2010. I, I, I'd been, again, part of the 2008 campaign, and, and uh, obviously my side lost that, and, and, and it was a hard-fought race. And I remember actually being out there in Arizona the night of the, uh, the, the, the campaign ended, and my head was telling me, all right, I've got a business degree. Let's go earn a living and get an adult job and, 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 and all of that. And and, uh, and that seemed like the right thing to do. And, and, and Lauren and I talked about it and prayed about it. And, and that was the, the path that we wanted to take. As it turned out, uh, November, December of 2008 was an epically bad time to try to launch a business career. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like undeterred, I, I kind of went out there and started posting my resume on places and sending it out and doing the whole thing and uh, was offered a couple really good jobs uh, where they were specifically looking for people with military backgrounds and business degrees to, to go into like management training type operations uh, and programs. And, and so uh, a couple good Fortune 500 companies had offered me jobs and, and they, they would have been a great opportunity. But my heart kept telling me that I wanted to do something else. And uh, it's actually, I don't know if I've ever told this story, but Lauren and I, we lived in Columbus at the time because we, I'd gotten a, a condo down there when I was going to Ohio State. And we owned this little downtown condo. And again, 2000, January, or January 2009 was a pretty bad time to try to sell any property, if anybody recalls back to then. And, and I came home and I said, Lauren, I want to run for office. And again, this is a woman that's been through like multiple combat deployments and all, and then supporting me while I worked through college and everything else. And, and now I decide I want to run for office, which is very, you know, uncertain. Like, what do you, how's the future going to look? And, 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 and we talked about it and, and, and she knew that it's what my heart uh, was telling me to do. And, and, but she said, well, okay, I've got to find a job in Northeast Ohio and we've got to sell this condo. And, and she thought it was a safe bet. She thought there's no way she's going to find a job in Northeast Ohio in, you know, early 2009. And there's no way that we're going to sell this downtown Columbus condo when nobody's buying any kind of residential properties. And by luck or chance or divine intervention or something, uh, in within a week, she got offered a job in Cleveland and we sold our condo in Columbus. And we said, all right, so I'm moving back home, uh, moving back home to Akron and I'm going to run for the state Senate. And, um, and it was, uh, what a thrill to be able to do that. I am curious, you know, how does doing behind the scenes work compared to being the candidate? Obviously there are very different roles. I don't know if I should say this, but I would actually, I much more enjoy the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, it's funny cause I'll have uh, friends that I grew up with and they'll say, how do you like politics? And, and I'll surprise them by saying, I hate politics. Like that, I, I found that, that politics is the job interview that I've got to go through in order to do public service. And I mean that sincerely, like it's a year long process. You have to endure the politics so that you can do the public service. And, um, you know, I, I'm willing to, to go out there and do the work and, and, and put a, a, you know, a lot of time into raising the money and, and meeting the voters and going to the county fairs and speaking at the different chicken dinners around the state and all this kind of stuff. And I, I do enjoy getting to know people and interact with people, but it's a, it's a grind, right? But what I really look forward to is the chance to do the public service side of it. Um, when I was a campaign operative, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I kind of miss that side of the being able to do that behind the scenes stuff. So I do want to dig in a little bit to your, um, legislative career. Sure. So, um, one of your very early votes just after taking office was Senate bill five, which restricted collective bargaining. It's important to note the law was eventually overturned by voters. You originally were against the bill, switched gears and ended up supporting it. You know, you received praise and a lot of flack for that move. You know, you said at the time you lost some sleep over that vote. 
what did you learn from that experience early in your legislative career? I'll tell you what, it's, um, it, it, it's, uh, something that I still remember distinctly and, and it was eight years ago now, right? Um, my first month on the job, um, I think that, uh, Everybody says that, you know, vote for me and I'll be prepared on day one. I think if you're going to be honest about it, nobody's really prepared on day one. I mean, you can have a, a decades-long career in local government. You could have a distinguished legal career. Uh, you could be a professor of public uh, uh, policy or, or, you know, whatever kind of training you can have. But still, your first day in the legislature, when you, like, first got to figure out where your parking spot is and then figure out how your key card works to get into the building and then like and then learn sort of the nuances of, of how to work uh, a piece of legislation to get it done and work with your colleagues and work through the committee process and all of that so you know your first couple months on the job maybe even your first couple years on the job you're 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 still getting your um getting your bearings right mm-hmm. and so to have such a controversial piece of legislation nearly right at the beginning and to sort of come out of the blue. I mean, I remember um, literally one morning I was in my office, like reading, getting caught up on clips for the day or whatever else, getting ready to go to committee. And I heard all this commotion and I asked uh, one of the guys that works in my office, I said, what's all the noise out there? Like what they said, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people protesting. I said, what are they protesting? Well, some bill was introduced yesterday that's got people all stirred up. I said, well, print it off. I want to read it because it sounds like something that's going to, you know, generate some attention. He said, well, boss, it's a few thousand pages, so I don't know if I can print it off. I started really diving into it and trying to understand it. And I'll tell you that um, as a a proud pro-labor Republican, and I'm part of that group that, that, that is uh, that's considered sort of the, the, the pro-labor or pro-union Republicans. I've, I've had and continue to have great relationships with a lot of organized labor organizations and, and, and have earned their support over the years and have been a consistent opponent of things like right to work and um, uh, I've been an opponent of eliminating prevailing wage and, and some of these other things. Um, I was concerned about it. And, and, and honestly, the way that the bill was first introduced, it went way too far. Uh, and I said that, uh, and, and I said that publicly, and maybe maybe that was naive of me to be so outspoken so early, but I said, you know, hey, this, this thing, I can't support it. It goes too far. Uh, what I found, though, through the process is that uh, it, it became clear to me that, that it had enough votes to pass. It was, it was going to pass one way or another. The governor wanted it to pass. The Senate leadership wanted it to pass. The House leadership wanted it to pass. And so I made a calculation. Um, I decided that um, if a piece of legislation like this is going to pass, then I may as well roll up my sleeves and try to make it better. Um, and, you know, I think the easier thing to do would have been to say, you know, I'm a no vote, heck no, uh, and, and that's that. But it was clear to me that it had the votes to pass. And so what I did is, is I, I sat down with some of the folks from some of these different organizations like the police and the firefighters and the teachers, and I said, what, what are the worst parts of this from your opinion? And, and I drafted up uh, a 99-page amendment, and, and, and I went to Senate leadership, and I said, the only way that I'll ever consider voting for this is if you make all these changes. Uh, and I fought for those, and, I, and they, you know, twisted my arm and all that kind of stuff, but I eventually got that amendment done. I got 99 pages of changes made to the bill, and I get it that nobody's going to call you a sort of hero of organized labor for that, but I felt like I was doing the statesman-like thing of taking a bad piece of legislation and moving it more toward the center. Um, and as a result of, you know, I got my 99 pages of amendments done, so then I had to keep my word and vote for it. I, um, 
you know, it, it was a gut-wrenching thing. I, I remember walking out on the Senate floor uh, with a pit in my stomach. And remember, I've walked onto a lot of battlefields, and I, I, this was harder. This was legitimately harder because I knew that the decision I was going to make um, – could affect 11 and a half million people, thousands of, of Ohio families, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, ultimately, the voters of Ohio, um, where the where the real power lies, right, uh, made the right decision and and sent us back uh, to the drawing board. And and, and as you've seen, uh, as a result of that, now um, you know, uh, I think that the the lesson was learned in Columbus by myself and by others uh, that the people of Ohio. Uh, believe in the basic right to organize, uh, to be part of a, a collective bargaining unit, and to have the chance to advocate for better conditions in your workplace. And uh, I think our role as public officials is to maintain that balance so that strong leadership or strong management and strong labor can come to the, the, the bargaining table and work things out. And that's what I view as the, the proper role of government, not to put our thumb on the scale for labor or put our thumb on the scale for management, but to maintain uh, that balance. And, and that's been my focus ever since. You actually introduced the bill that later became law that eliminated Golden Week. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a peer. It was a period of early voting where people could both register to vote and cast an in-person absentee ballot. It was hotly contested, back and forth legal battle. Actually, ended with the Supreme Court, but it's the law of the land here in Ohio. Um, I'm I'm just curious why. You know, what was sort of the impetus behind that? So. The elections officials, in a bipartisan way, Republicans and Democrats for years, had been telling us that this was problematic. Um, what happened was Ohio's Constitution requires that you be registered to vote 30 days before the election. Uh, when the 35 days of early voting was put into place, the intention was not to create this period where people could register to vote and vote on the same day. The intention was that those folks would have had to be registered 30 days before that. But as a result of a court decision, it was found that people could register to vote and vote on the same day without any opportunity for um, verification that that address is correct, without any opportunity to make sure that they weren't registered in multiple places and that kind of thing. And that kind of stuff is exceedingly rare, I understand. Uh, but it was, a, it was a cause for concern. And by the way, it was a bipartisan cause for concern um, prior to me being there a few years uh, before that in, in the, I think it was 2008 or 2009, uh, there was a bill that was introduced by prominent Democrats, including uh, one from from Cleveland here who serves in the state Senate uh, that would that did the same thing that eliminated that 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 five day golden week, so-called golden week period, uh, which was kind of a haphazardly put together uh, process of same day registration and voting. And so when um, you know, when, when it had that kind of um, support from a bipartisan group of, of, of uh, elections officials, and they were saying, hey, we need to get rid of this, this period, uh, then I thought it was a conversation worth engaging in. Now, I'll say this, uh, there are many of my colleagues that wanted to reduce early voting by substantial margins. I mean, there were folks that wanted to, to go down to 14 days. Um, and by the way, that's kind of a, a national average is two weeks of, of, of early voting. Um, and, uh, you know, there were there were folks saying that, that, well, Ohio should, instead of 35 days, we should only have two weeks or three weeks of, of early voting or maybe even one week. Uh, some folks that were sort of on the extreme on this would say, hey, look at states like New York, which, by the way, the, the lawyers that ended up suing us, uh, I, I would say, are pretty hypocritical because they came from the state of New York where there's no early voting. And they were suing Ohio for, for having 28 days of early voting. Uh, but, you know, what, what I decided to do was 
be kind of a voice of reason on this because there were folks that, like I said, wanted to, to precipitously reduce early voting, and I did not want to do that. And so what I did is introduced a piece of legislation that would reduce it only enough to eliminate Golden Week, but no more. And that's why we have 28 days of early voting. So essentially, once the constitutional uh, requirement in Ohio of 30 days before uh, election to, to, um, to have to be registered, once that is over, then early voting starts, and it runs for, for 28 days. Um, Ohio has more early voting days than almost any other state in the country. We're in the top 10, certainly the highest in the Midwest. I think that it's worth protecting. Uh, I think that, that people appreciate that opportunity. Uh, but I think that a full month of early voting uh, is adequate in Ohio. Now, if, if people want to see something like same-day voter registration, uh, you know, I would be open to that conversation, but that has to be done legislatively. And that's what they have in, in states like New Hampshire, uh, where they have put a process in place where if you want to register to vote on the same day that you vote, uh, it takes a period of time. It takes 45 minutes or an hour because they have to run some, some checks to make sure that the address is legitimate and, and all of that. If we wanted to put something more thoughtful and deliberate like that in place, I'm open to that idea. Uh, but this sort of haphazard process uh, that existed previously was bad and, and needed to be, uh, we, we needed to, to move beyond that. And thankfully we have now. And let's protect those 28 days of early voting that we have and make sure that we continue uh, to be a leader in the nation for voter convenience like we are right now. So there's election happening uh, this year. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if anybody has uh, heard that yet. But... Did you know 2018? <laughs> so, so the next segment, you guys got more into politics, right? Yeah, we talked with him about his, you know, both his philosophy for what he wants to do as a secretary of state and just his philosophy on, you know, I, I think people who've made it this far in the interview can probably tell that LaRose is a little more, um, I guess you could call it kind of old school Republican, like the... Uh, he mentioned civility being very important to him. Well, we live in a pretty uncivil time as far as politics goes, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying that. You know, he he's kind of a different mold from where you see these other candidates running. I mean, think of just about anyone who's kind of trying to take the Trump mantle or whatever. And uh, and, and, it's, and it's not just a Republican thing. You know, Democrats do it too. It's, it, it, you know, there it is on both sides. But I think it's really been exacerbated since the president took office. And he is this, like... I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, he talks about being like a pro-labor Republican, which is like, is that even a thing anymore, really? No. The one thing that you hear Frank LaRose say over and over again is statesmen and stateswomen. And the other thing he talks about is civility and working, you know, across the aisle. And I think that stems from his, his military background, you know, like just being able to work together and be a part of the team. I, I don't think he tends to adhere to, you know, he, he referred to it as tribalism of, of some of the um, political parties. Like, I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, we are always going to be on the opposite side of every issue and we're constantly going to be fighting. I, I don't think that's the kind of politician he is. And I think his answer to sort of functioning in this very um, adversarial type of political environment that we currently live in is I'm just going to do me. And, you know, if, if I see somebody, you know, who maybe is a Democrat who has an idea that I think I can work with them on, I'm, I'm going to help them. And 
Yeah, I think Trump really tapped into sort of like politics as entertainment and like this blood sport and kind of, you know, the metaphor I always go back to is pro wrestling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But Frank LaRose is this guy who cares about civility. And I mean, I, he literally was a Boy Scout, right? So he's, he's an Eagle, he's an Scout. Eagle Scout. So he, he comes off as the Eagle Scout, which is like the more statesman-like equivalent mm -hmm. of the Boy Scout, of course. With that, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Frank LaRose. So when you dig into, you know, what you've done at the State House, I mean, voting issues are a huge part of, of what you've done. You you actually sponsored legislation that created the uh, online voter uh, system here in Ohio mm -hmm. that allows people to register to vote. You know, I know that you have been interested in voting issues, but what made you want to run for Secretary of State? Uh, again, it comes back to that interest in, in, in elections and that passion for elections, uh, having seen people vote for the first time in Kosovo and having been there when they were conducting their first national election in Iraq. And um, I mean, it, it's a remarkable thing. And, and I've had the chance to work on a lot of those voting issues over the years. I'm also, and again, maybe I'm, maybe time will, will, will tell that I'm naive about this, but at least I'm willing to try uh, to take some of this partisanship out of the way that we run elections and to take some of the, the litigiousness, I mean, all these lawsuits out of the way that we run elections. It seems to me that prior to the Bush v. Gore election and the uh, Florida hanging chads issue, which for, you know, for many of us was, you know, a distant memory, but there was a time when Republicans and Democrats would fight hard f during campaign season, but starting at 630 on the morning of election day agreed on how the ballots should be counted, right? That's kind of fundamental. It's foundational to our system of government that we all sort of agree on the rules of, of the game. And, and let's have this argument based on ideology, on ideas for how our country should be governed, on solutions for, for how we as a state can move forward and as a nation. But this, this sort of gamesmanship around the conduct of elections is damaging, I think. And, and, and I think that, uh, you know, Republicans tend to overstate fraud. Uh, which is very rare, uh, but serious. And Democrats tend to overstate suppression, which is very rare, but serious. I mean, both of these things are things that we can all agree there should be, uh, we should fight fraud and we should fight suppression. Like, okay, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, why, why does that have to be an argument? Uh, but both are rare. And, and, and we engage in this hyperbole where we uh, try to stoke the base, uh, respectively, with, with these kind of things that, that are overstated. Uh, and really what it does is it, it degrades people's confidence and trust in the process. And that that is corrosive. Right. And so I want to try at least to make my small effort uh, to get back to where Republicans and Democrats can agree on the rules of the game. And let's have an argument. Let's have a discussion based on um, ideas uh, and, and not on process. Uh, let's stop fighting over how we run elections uh, to the extent that we can. Uh, and these are things that reasonable people should be able to agree on, that we want to prevent fraud, that we want to prevent suppression, that we have to prevent fraud and, and suppression, but that we should celebrate what we have, which is the, the most accessible, uh, freest, uh, efficient form of, of, of voting anywhere in the world. I mean, look at the delegations that come to this country and that specifically come to this state to observe our process and learn about it. Uh, what we have is, is, is the envy of the world, and can we make it better? Absolutely, every day. We can always work to make uh, elections more accessible and more accurate and more fair, uh, but uh, what we have is a, is a really good thing, and we should celebrate that. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk because, uh, you know, you're a member of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party doesn't really take up, uh, you know, as, as a 
broad party, I should say, doesn't necessarily take up voter issues. And, you know, you've seen a lot of Republican politicians who said, you know, uh, voter ID laws are going to help us win the election, you know, kind of infamously over in Pennsylvania and whatnot. And I'm wondering, do you sort of feel like a like a man on an island within your party when you're kind of sort of talking about this? I mean, even the president of the United States is saying, you know, three million people voted illegally and all these things. And you seem to be a bit of an outlier within your own party. You know, I think that maybe an outlier among sort of talking heads on television or an outlier among the, uh, uh, the, the bombastic voices that tend to get the attention on cable news or, or, or whatever else. But I think that, that I represent a, a mainstream view. I think that I represent the average person uh, that wants to, to see um, – uh, that wants to see us move beyond the kind of partisan fighting that that, that uh, has so characterized our, our national discourse over the last few decades, quite honestly. Uh, and so, um, you know, on the redistricting question, I was asked this in the past because I've long been a, a voice in favor of, of reforming the way that district lines are drawn. And people have said, well, hey, this has benefited your party for the last couple decades. Why would you want to change it? And to me, the answer is obvious. It, it, for me, what's, uh, I don't make my decisions based on what's good for one party or the other. I, I'm in this business because I want to serve. I'm in this business because I want to make our state uh, better, more free, more prosperous. Um, and I'm a proud Republican, but it was not stamped on my birth certificate the day I was born. It doesn't define who I am entirely. And uh, doing what's best for Ohio is, is my priority, not what's best for one political party or you know, I think we know why uh, we've heard Democrats sort of uh, uh, be a little louder about these sort of issues because, you know, frankly, they've lost a lot of elections. And, you know, you talk about gerrymandering. The districts are drawn for Republicans. Um, do, you, do you think more Republicans should come out and say, you know, take a stand on gerrymandering or any of these other issues? Because it, it just seems to be something that's of little significance to a lot of them. Well, I will say this, that, um, you know, if, if you look back over recent history, um, you have seen some leadership from Republicans, uh, sometimes late to come to the table. I guess I should say uh, within the past 10 years or so. Well, yeah, but if, I mean, if you look at, so the bill that created early voting in Ohio was passed with Republican majorities in, in the House and the Senate and a Republican governor. Uh, if you look at the bill that created online voter registration, the bill that I wrote, uh, it was passed with Republican majorities in the House and the Senate and signed by a Republican governor. Um, if you look at uh, uh, the bill that uh, or the resolution that created issue one two years ago to reform state legislative redistricting and the resolution uh, that became issue one a few months ago that, that created congressional redistricting reform in Ohio, again, Republican leadership on, on, on both chambers and in the governor's uh, office, but also uh, our Democrat colleagues were involved as well. And that's how it had to be. I mean, you cannot do redistricting reform in a proper way if it's a if it's a one party endeavor. And so I would say this, that, uh, you know, as much as uh, sometimes my party has been late to come to the table on this when they have, uh, they, they, they've, they've enacted good public policy. Uh, and I would say uh, that um, I, I've often said that, that this is tough love um, for, for my Republican Party. And again, I, I'm, I'm proud of uh, um, uh, to be a Republican, I, I, that doesn't mean I, I, I always uh, toe the party line on, on every issue, but it comes down to me sort of the, the basic fundamental belief that, that, uh, uh, that freedom is the solution to most problems versus centralized government control. And um, I believe that as a party, we're stronger when we win based on our ideas for governing, uh, when we win based on the candidates uh, uh, offering better solutions. I don't think that it strengthens the party to win 
uh, by tinkering with the rules so that we receive an advantage in the way that lines are drawn or by tinkering with the rules in any other way. And so, uh, you know, I want to see more competitive elections, and I think that redistricting reform can, can create that, that, um, that scenario where there are more competitive uh, elections. You mentioned the redistricting ballot initiative, and uh, one of the criticisms against it is that it still allows politicians to draw the lines. They do it in a bipartisan fashion, or they're mm-hmm. supposed to do it in a bipartisan fashion. Um, do you think politicians should have a seat at the table when you know drawing the lines is to their benefit? So I think that uh, it's this is uh, an interesting question because do you want people that are accountable to the voters that that, that draw these lines, uh, or do you want to appoint some bipartisan commission that does it, that doesn't have any accountability to the voters. I know that that seems appealing uh, in, to some people, but I would submit that there is no sort of nonpartisan group of angels that have no bias that are going to spend months of their lives drawing district lines um, and do so, again, bringing no uh, preconceived notions or, or, or bias to the table. I think that uh, trying to take the politics out of redistricting is like trying to take the wetness out of water. I mean, it is an inherently political process. Drawing political, congressional, and state legislative districts is a high-stakes political process. And and I think that when you try to create these these independent commissions, so-called independent commissions, and, and, and these kind of things, that what you're really doing is, is kind of putting the, the, the process in the dark. Uh, you're, you're taking away some uh, transparency and some accountability. With the, the process that we created, uh, you've got elected officials that will be penalized by the voters if they don't do a satisfactory job, hopefully. Um, hopefully they do do a satisfactory job. And, uh, and, and you um, are clear, sort of, these are the Republicans, these are the Democrats, um, and they're required to sit down at the table and work it out in a statesman and stateswoman-like way. And, um, and and that, to me, is the best part of this process is that it requires compromise, which, again, is not a dirty word. Statesmen and women solve problems in our form of government using compromise. And that's exactly what this process requires. Um, it's hard. Compromise is not easy. Uh, but uh, but I have faith that, that as long as we put good people in charge of this process, uh, that a much better outcome will be reached than the current sort of winner-take-all process. As mentioned, you know, a couple times you're running for Secretary of State's office, uh, you know, voting being one of the bigger issues there. But the, oh, another big issue that you handle there is campaign finance reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask, I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here saying that, uh, you know, Ohio's campaign finance reporting requirements are pretty lax uh, for the politicians. You know, you only have, I believe, what, uh, you know, four or five reporting periods that you really have to deal with. It's mm-hmm. not updated on a regular basis. What do you make of the reporting requirements in terms of uh, kind of government transparency? Yeah. Well, when you look at state to state, uh, actually, Ohio's got, got a decent set of campaign finance disclosure requirements. It's all put online. It's made available. Um, if you're in an off-cycle year, meaning that you're not running that year, you have to report every six months. Um, if you're in cycle, uh, uh, th- then you have to report much more often. And as it gets closer to the election day for statewide candidates like myself, we'll have to report every month. And um, and so, you know, it, it could it be improved? Absolutely. And and one of the bills that I've introduced w- would bring that same level of transparency to local elections, uh, because right now people that are running for mayor, uh, county executive or county commissioner, um, some of these offices that, that require a large, robust 
you know, multiple hundred thousand dollar campaigns are, are not reported electronically. And so you got to go get the old sort of dead tree copies of, of the paperwork from the County Board of Elections in order to know how they're raising and spending money. Uh, so that's one process that needs to be improved. You know, ultimately, I think that the best thing that we can do for campaign finance is, is um, better transparency. I mean, transparency to me, uh, public information um, so that so that journalists, so that citizen advocates, uh, so that your opponent uh, can can look and see where you're getting money and how it's being spent. Uh, that's the uh, the best solution, in my opinion. Um, arbitrary limits uh, tend to fail. I think uh, when you when you say you're not allowed to get money. Uh, above a certain amount or whatever else, th then what ends up happening is you see these kind of dark money groups that exist that, that uh, ultimately are, are, are very non-transparent, right? And so some of these sort of, sort of best efforts to improve campaign finance have actually caused uh, in many ways them to, to, to become less transparent. Um, so, you know, what I want to see is, is greater transparency, and I believe that the voters deserve to know who's spending money to try to um, influence the outcome of an election. Does that mean more reporting periods, uh, maybe a monthly or, uh, you know, over so much amount or anything like that? Yeah, I think that that, that kind of thing would be would be laudable, um, and uh, especially over a certain amount. Um, you know, it, there's a um, logistical question there of most of your campaign treasurers or volunteers, and how do you, you know, when, when do you, uh, how often do you, do you have to upload a report and, and that kind of thing, but certainly uh, uh, contributions over a certain amount requiring uh, a, a more immediate uh, disclosure of those is, is fine. But again, where my concern is, is not with the traditional campaigns, where there's a pretty high level of, of transparency. I mean, you know who's raising money from where and what they're spending it on on a campaign. Uh, the problem is these these independent groups that are existing out there uh, where it's sort of all in the shadows. And uh, and as a candidate, that worries me, too, because one of these groups could raise money and, and, and sort of purport to be speaking on my behalf and maybe conducting themselves in a way that I would consider uncivil, for example, or unfair. And, 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 but the, the average person would view that and say, wow, uh, this must be something that I approved, even though it's not. And, and so, you know, some of these, these independent expenditure groups are, are where a lot of the concern rightfully lies. So we've just got a little bit left, so I did want to ask some uh, uh, pure politics questions sure. as opposed to just policy. You know, listening to you talk about some of your positions and kind of why you did things and all that, I think it's easy to describe you as a more moderate member of uh, the conservative faction or the Republican Party, however you want to describe it. And I'm curious, what is it like uh, running in this political climate where you do have, you know, Donald Trump's in the presidency, kind of a far right guy? You've got um, a lot of more, you know, further right, uh, more conservative members of Congress really making inroads and sort of be in the face of the party in many ways. And um, here you are who, you know, you've, you mentioned the word moderate several times, moderation civility. and civility and all this. And what what is it like running in this atmosphere for you? Well, first of all, I, I, I guess I've never been a big fan of labels. I think that they're... Um, they're bound to fail. Like none of us fit perfectly in one box. There are some areas where I think you would consider me, you know, very conservative. There's other areas where you would consider me more moderate. Um, I think that that's the way most people are. I anybody that thinks that they fit sort of neatly within one box, it's just, it's not the, the way that it, that it works. And I think that 
there is a silent majority out there of people that that want to see solutions. They want to see government. They they don't want to see um, arguing, um, fighting. Uh, I'm part of a group called No Labels that that is a DC based group that that has been working to sort of encourage that across the aisle dialogue. And and part of their their one of their mottos is stop fighting, start fixing. Uh, they 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 you you know, have the label problem solver uh, uh, used by this group a lot to describe sort of the ideal kind of, 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 of governing. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting environment for sure. And uh, I think that we've got work to do, but um, Americans have always risen to the challenge of, of, of uh, facing uh, obstacles and, and overcoming them. And, and again, this may not be as grandiose as, uh, uh, putting uh, a, a people on the moon. This may not be as grandiose as defeating uh, a threat uh, globally like the World War II generation did, but I think one of the challenges that, that our generation has is making government work again. Um, and that means people that can talk to one another and actually solve problems together. Um, and, and, you know, it was Churchill that said democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. It's messy. It's 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 hard uh but it's work worth doing and uh, i'll keep doing it as long as i can does it become a challenge to keep that civility and um not necessarily for you but uh, with kind of outside forces you know um you know you mentioned wanting to run a civil campaign and have civil discourse when you look at you know president trump i don't think i'm going out of line by saying hey you know he's maybe not the most civil of uh um you know presidents ever uh he you know his twitter alone um, and I'm he curious. Has a, he has a different style for sure than, yeah. than I would know. And I, and I support many of his policies and, and, and I've supported him and, 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 and do support him. But, uh, uh, but certainly the, yeah, the way that he conducts himself is not the way that I would. Uh, and, and you know, he's a uh, one of a kind, that's for sure. Does it make it, I mean, how do you kind of navigate that? Do you just yeah. try to do you? I mean, do you ever face uh, criticism from, say, the right where they say, oh, you're being, you know, maybe not they're saying you're being too civil, but you mm -hmm. don't go after Democrats sure. or something like this that. Enough, you know? You're not being this enough or yeah. that enough. You know, I, I've been asked the question, would you, uh, for example, as it relates to the president, w would you welcome him to come to Ohio and campaign on your behalf? And and just like think about that. Any Anybody would welcome the president of their – serves as a member of their own party to come. And so, of course, I'd love to have President Trump come to Ohio and campaign on my behalf. Does that mean I agree with him on everything? No. I don't agree with my wife on everything, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. I mean, he's not necessarily a role model for my children in some ways. Um, he's not a choir boy. He, that's not what people elected him to be. Um, they, they like the, that that sort of uh, abrupt style, and they were they were looking for that, and, and, and they felt that that's what they, they needed. Um, but I'll I'll be me. I'll, I'll conduct myself in the statesmanlike way that I think is uh, is necessary because uh, it's who I am. Uh, as a maybe it's a Midwestern thing versus an East Coast thing. I don't know. Uh, but but I know that you can get more done by working together than you can by sort of constantly being at odds. And um, I think I, I, I learned that uh, growing up, um, and that was further refined in the military. Um, and it's part of who I am. I mean, it's, it's, you started uh, earlier on talking about the, the, the people that um, are veterans serving. And if you look at some of uh, uh, a lot of the veterans that, that are serving in, in public office have, have actually really set that example for thoughtfulness and, and moderation and uh, 
and civility and that kind of thing. And it's not, it's not the stereotype. You think of, you know, military people as like hard charging, gruff, tough, and all of this, but, but actually uh, in many cases, what you do learn to do is, is a lot of problem solving, a lot of working together to get things done. And, and that's, uh, that's the, the culture that I bring from the military uh, to the work that I do today. And, um, you know, again, I'm going to continue to do it because it's who I am. So the Secretary of State's race isn't exactly the highest profile race in the state. You know, it's not doesn't have quite the you know Senate or governor's appeal or really? whatever, right? <laughs> so I'm, cur- I'm curious. You know, we just like yeah. we just talked about Trump. And, sure. You know, there's all these other sort of you know you know political storms going on, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you and I guess for that matter, your opponent even uh, you know make this race matter to voters enough so that you know you aren't so reliant on say the top of the ticket or whatever the political headwinds are of the day. Uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting that, that uh, obviously I wake up every morning thinking about the Secretary of State's race. There's a small team that works with me that does. My, my, my wife Lauren does, and, and now my three little girls do because they're out walking in parades with us this summer and that kind of thing. But um, the average Ohioan doesn't think about the Secretary of State's race. And as I've been saying out on the campaign trail, if you're thinking about politics on a daily basis, and I hope for your own mental well-being, you're not thinking about politics on a daily basis. But if you are, you're thinking about the governor's race or the U.S. Senate race and that kind of thing. And I've often said many people don't know that Ohio has a Secretary of State, right? Like most people would think, Ohio Secretary of State, is that the person that negotiates peace treaties with Michigan? You know, it's <laughs> And I've done a very good job. And, and, and I've said on the on the campaign trail, I will never negotiate peace treaties with Michigan. But, uh, you know, the the job is something that is vitally important to our state and the way it functions and our role in the country and in the world. Uh, the secretary of state has the unique responsibility of sort of safeguarding things that I think are fundamental to our way of life. Uh, fundamental to what it means to be an Ohioan, to be an American, and that is free markets and free elections. And 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 uh, if you think about it on the on the free election side, as the chief elections officer, it's your job to make sure that Ohio continues to conduct elections um, in a stately manner that are uh, relatively free of fraud and suppression, uh, where every Ohioan can access their their right and their responsibility to be a voter. Um, that's a pretty high level of, of, of responsibility and something that I'd be excited to go to work every day and do. On the free uh, market side, you're the front door for any new business. I mean, you know, when my great-grandfather decided to pursue his American dream and start a business 80 years ago, he had to secure articles of incorporation from the Ohio Secretary of State's office. That's today, thankfully, online. You don't have to drive to Columbus or mail the paperwork to Columbus to do it. But anytime uh, that, that, that woman who, who is... Uh, uh, decided to start her business uh, and, and wants to make a go of it, uh, starts at the Secretary of State's office. That that new immigrant to our country uh, that has that, that sort of spirit and, and, and drive to, to start their own business, they start that at the Secretary of State's office. I mean, uh, and so this office combining free markets and free elections, um, if there's if there are things worth fighting for and, and worth working for, I would submit that those are. And if I get to go to work every day to, to do those two things, to safeguard those very fundamental things about our way of life, then uh, I'd be excited to do it. And uh, it would be the honor of my life to be given that chance. You're from Hudson, right? You I, live I grew, in Hudson. grew up in Copley, but I live in Hudson now, right. yeah. So you live in Hudson now. Your opponent, Kathleen Clyde, lives in Kent. So what is it about that area of the state that makes people want to be Secretary of State? You know, it's interesting. Uh, my, <laughs> my opponent and I have, have a lot of things in common, and I have a high level of respect for her. We, we differ in uh, our approaches and our 
um, policy decisions and that kind of thing. Uh, but we're, we're the same age, um, exactly the same. I think we're a month apart in age, and our homes are maybe five, six miles apart. Uh, we both entered the legislature the exact same time. And so we, we do have a, a lot of things in common. Um, you know, it'll be an interesting and spirited contest. I don't know if there's any anything in the water in Northeast Ohio that makes people want to run for Secretary of State, but uh, uh, but it will be an interesting contest that uh, that we both come from the same part of the part of the state. I understand that uh, if you weren't running for Secretary of State, uh, you would like to jump out of planes <laughs> on a daily basis. Is skydiving a passion of yours? You know, it's funny. Uh, my, my my wife always jokes with me that I, I you know, am, am a, an, an adrenaline enthusiast, I guess you could say. And so uh, uh, that, that's one of the things that I enjoy. I enjoy flying. I enjoy kayaking. In fact, uh, I've been uh, the last couple of years, I've been kayaking on the Cuyahoga River, which if anybody hasn't tried it, I'd encourage you to. It's a great, uh, a great way to, to enjoy an afternoon here in Northeast Ohio. Um, but, you know, I, I have always enjoyed things outdoors. I mean, if, uh, this weekend I was baling hay with a friend of mine at his farm. That was my recreation. Uh, you know, I, some people play golf. I like to farm. Uh, and, and I've enjoyed being able to help my, my friend that, that owns a farm in Copley over the years. Um, but, yeah, uh, skydiving is, 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 is a lot of fun. And uh, I have something like 60 jumps from my time in the Army. But it's been a while since I've been able to do it. Something about uh, having a family is, has kept me away from it. So. All right, Frank, thanks so much for joining us here this week. We appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. Uh, thank, uh, thank you, Mary.